Good morning, everybody. It is such a pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, if you're a guest with us, I especially want to welcome you and say thank you for joining us here. And uh, my hope and my prayer for you is the same as it is for, for everybody who's here, both in person and joining us online, and that simply is no matter where you find yourself in your faith today. I hope and I pray that you're able to take one step towards Jesus because this is what we're all about here. Uh, amen? Amen. So we are in uh, week four of our series called Vices, where we're looking at um, the seven capital vices, or uh, you might know them as the seven deadly sins. And so as we've been going through this, it's been rough. I totally get that. Um, totally get it. So today I figure with Thanksgiving coming up, we'll just tackle gluttony. How's that sound? I'm not kidding. Um, yeah, some of you are like, yay, that's great, let's do it. No, no, I'm just kidding. We're going to save that till the end. So today instead, we'll tackle greed. Uh, you want to go back to gluttony, don't you? Right, it might be a little bit easier. I'm sure the moment uh, when I say greed here, we've all got different opinions of what this means and what it looks like. So let's just get all on the same page. When we talk about greed, what I mean is this. It's an excessive love for money or any possession that money can buy, all right? It's, it's an excessive love for money or a possession that money can buy. Pretty simple definition, right? We're all working on the same thing. Now, now that I mention money, some of you are really trying to figure out how bad do I have to go to the bathroom and can I get to my car, right? Can I, can I get out of here that fast? And um, if you're a guest with us, you might be thinking, great, the one week that I try to, to check out a church, they're going to talk about money. This is what always happens. The church is always talking about money. Um, when will they ever stop talking about money? Jimmy's going to try to guilt me into giving more, isn't he? That's what he's going to do. Um, can, I, can I just tell you, I get it. I, I totally get it. I get that the church talks about money, and every time they do talk about money, it's so weird, isn't it? Um, it's so weird, and it feels like there's an agenda to it, and I just have to tell you straight off the bat here, as clear as I can tell you, my intention today is not to get more from you. It's not to guilt you into anything. Um, we do all that we can at our church to be very transparent to be unashamedly biblical when we look at what the Bible has to say. And so we talk about everything and anything, and I've worked with too many people inside of our church and outside of our church who are going through troubles to know that the mismanagement of money is one of the issues that destroys our life. When we can't learn how to manage money and what to do with money, it just, um, it messes with us. It messes with us, amen? Yeah, like one or two of you are like, kind of, you know, no, no. If you're like, if I say amen, they're going to know I wrestle with money. Welcome to humanity. Okay, this is a problem. And, I, and here's what's great. I know that Jesus saw this in people's lives, and he knew that too. Do you know that 16 out of the 38 parables that he tells are about money, right? That's a ton of stories about money. He was concerned with handling money and possessions, in the biographies of Jesus, written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's amazing that one out of 10 verses, that's like 288 verses in all, deal directly with the subject of money. And the Bible itself, here's what's great, it offers us like 500 different verses on prayer, 500 or so just under on faith, but about 2,000 verses on money and possessions. Why? 
Why would our holy scriptures talk so much about this? It's not because God is greedy and needs our money, but because we are greedy. And when we are, this becomes a huge issue. So I I do need to say, if you're here today and um, you are trying to figure out your faith, that you're someone who would not call yourself a follower of Jesus, and listen, I'm going to ask you to stick with me today and not check out. Like, the the reason I'm going to do that is because I believe what the Bible has to say. These principles will make a huge difference in anybody's life when it comes to money, not just those who follow Jesus. But this morning, um, I'm not going to sit here if you're in that position and say, here's what I think you should give to Crossbridge, or here's what you should give to another church. There's no agenda to that whatsoever. I just think the principles that are here can free you to live a much better, more generous life. And so, like I said, we talk about it because Jesus did. And so if you've got any beef with this, just go take it up with Jesus, okay? Um, He's the one who's going to say these things. And anytime he talks about money, he never usually brings it up himself. It's almost always in response to someone's question or a statement. And today, I I just simply want to look at at three times that Jesus addresses money. One of them will be a story, one of them will be a statement, and one of them will be a situation that he's going to point out a lesson. And from that point, after we look at these three, we're going to pull out a little bit about what greed is and how it takes its hold, its vice, its, its grip on our life. And so let's just start from the story that Bill had read for us just a little while ago. And if you have your Bibles with you, I'd love you to turn to the biography of Jesus written by Luke in chapter 12. And here, Dr. Luke is writing a story, and people want to know what Jesus is thinking about a specific topic. And in verse 13, it just says, Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Now, what's interesting here is this is a pretty common issue. All right, this is a common issue. Um, a brother wants to know what to do with the inheritance or the land that's there, so they go to a teacher, because teachers often acted like judges. They were people in authority that would help determine the right outcome of things, and so they're treating them like a judge, and there's no way to know in this parable, this story with a point, if, uh, you know, that, that Jesus is about to tell, there's no way of knowing if the brother who's coming has any legal right for a judgment to be made, okay? There's no context that we have of this guy other than feeling like a whiny kid who's like, Tom share. That's what it feels like. Give me what's mine. So Jesus doesn't judge. Jesus is not in a place of judgment. He's not going to do that. Instead, he's going to turn to an area that no one has the right to judge, and that simply is our motivation and our attitude towards money. In verse 14, he picks up and it says, Jesus replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? And then he said, beware, guard against every kind of, what's that word there? Guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. Come on, there's no way this dude in the crowd is sitting there going, tell him to share and expects this. Jesus just, I, I love how he turns things on people sometimes. He's like, I just, I just wanted my, my portion of the estate. Why are you about to tell me a story? 
Make a judgment, give me what's mine. But what Jesus does is he tells the story that cuts to the heart of the problem here. This man's story that we just heard is about a fertile field. And that means that he's got an abundance of crops. There has been a surplus. Those are good years, aren't they? Those are good, good years. And so the question arises for the field owner, what do I do with what I don't need? Right? That, that's the essence of this parable. What do I do with what I don't need? If you notice, more crops did not solve his problem. It actually created a new problem for him. Right? He, he's going to now have to spend more money to take down barns, to build bigger barns. And, and it's clear based on what he says here, I'm going to store all of this up for myself so that my future is taken care of. It's smarter to bank all my surplus now because I don't know if I'm going to have another year like this. So I'm going to bank it. And when God speaks to him in this parable and uses the phrase, you fool, let me tell you, that is a bold phrase. And it's used actually in the Old Testament often to talk about people who reject the knowledge and the instructions of God. People who cannot listen to what God has told them to do are fools. They don't listen. And so Jesus just gets right to the point with them. He says, you've got extra. And your first thought is about holding on to it? Uh, you, you've worked so hard to save and What's going to happen with all of that? What happens with everything that you've got? You're not even going to use it. It's of no use to you. And then he really gets at the heart in verse 21. In verse 21, he says, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. Listen, in, in this life, if we're going to put a massive amount of effort into banking, it should be investing in our relationship with God, not our money and possessions. If we're going to invest, it should be in our relationship with God, not into money and possessions. And I know that this is a tough teaching. And I'm sure that every single one of us right now is trying to come up with some sort of excuse some sort of reason or exception to work around what Jesus really meant when he told this parable. But the problem is this is not the only parable. He says it over and over and over and over. When people bring up money and possessions, he stops and he says, why are you asking, what's your heart look like behind this? What are you trying to acquire? Why are you trying to get more for yourself? Are you worried that your brother is getting too much? Your family is getting too much? Do you not already have what you need? Are, are you looking for more security so that you can kick back later in life? This is the story that Jesus tells, and it leads us to a statement that he makes only 10 verses later in this chapter. He says this, starting in verse 31. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he will give you everything you what? Say it with me again. He will give you everything you need. Sell your possessions and give to those who? In need. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. 
and the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it. No moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is there, the desires of your heart will also be. You see, Jesus is clear. There is a very different thing. There's a very big difference between our wants and our needs. And he tells his listeners that are all in on this story that, listen, do you have what you need? If you have what you need, your responsibility then is to sell what you have that's extra to help those in need. If you have what you need, you sell what's extra to those who are in need. And what you earn is not just for you, it's for those around you. That's very opposite of our culture, isn't it? But this is the teachings of Jesus. You see, it's the responsibility to use our extra that God has given to us to meet the needs of those around us. And if we keep God at the center of all that we do, I have a very good feeling that our ability to discern the difference between what we really need and what we really want becomes much clearer. Because right now, I can already see on faces going, but I do need that. And you already know you're making excuses to say that because it's just something you really want. I know this is hard. But this is the teachings of Jesus. To put the kingdom of heaven at the center of all that we do. And when we find out that God has provided all that we need in his deep love for us, our need is met, and so it will birth this new life of generosity in us. We will trust him. We will be content in him. And it's from this statement of contentment that we will look at one situation found in the biography of Jesus written by um, one of his great friends, a disciple named Mark. And in Mark chapter 12, this is a moment where it's actually the very final public teaching in Jesus's life. This is the last thing he's going to go on record teaching before his death. And, and, and he's hanging out in the temple in Jerusalem, which is huge. And, and this uh, area of the temple that he's hanging in is called the, uh, it's called the Court of the Women. All right, so this is where everybody could be gathered. And this is what we read, starting in verse 41. It says, Jesus sat down near a collection box in the temple. And he watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Rich people put large amounts. And then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Now, it's great as Jesus is sitting here with everybody that's kind of frustrated at him constantly. They're waiting. They're waiting, most of Israel and most of Jerusalem, to put him on a cross. They cannot stand him. And they're waiting for him to mess up. And here he sits in this packed out temple. And as part of their faith, people watch each other give money. Isn't that kind of weird? 
Like we try to do it all secretly or whatever, but it was part of faith to, to kind of show how much you were given. And it was part of their faith to give. And still to this day in our country, um, those who follow a Jewish tradition and faith are the most generous people in our country when it comes to how they give uh, statistically. But they give. They're instructed to give, just like we are today. But, but here's what I love. The offering plate was not jump on your app, jump online, or put it in the box in the back. They actually had these giant round tins that almost looked like horns that went straight down and they funneled in and they kind of went right into where the the treasury would be and it would funnel down in. If you're old enough, uh, and I'm not going to put a definition to that, do you remember going to the mall and you remember that big old cone thing at the mall that if you put a coin in it goes, anybody else remember this besides me? Okay, good. You just identified yourself as old. Thank you. Um, Oh, they still have them? Great. Then we're all old together, right? Or we're all oldly young. Yeah. So it, it looked like that, okay? Just imagine that. But imagine that it's metal. And, and what you would have is metal that's there, and they would drop their coins to make some noise. And obviously, the more that you give, the more noise you would make. So you could simply take your offering... And you would announce, you're giving. You know the worst part about this? And you're thinking it's the coins. You can't hear dollars fall, so I'm going to try to make sure that I've got just coins so that you hear how much I give. And here sits Jesus, hanging back. And he hears all of this. Everybody hears how much is being given. And then there's this poor widow. And he points to her And that's when he does this in verse 43. Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their what? They gave a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she was and poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. What a lesson here, isn't it? What a lesson that Jesus points out to us. He isn't shaming the rich people at all in this situation. He's not throwing shade their way, but he's pointing out everything that they gave was simply a portion of their extra. And and come on, how hard is it to give a portion of your extra? If you've got all this extra and you're like, all right, we'll give a small portion of that to this or that... You don't feel that, do you? No, you don't feel that at all. And so everyone around them is probably thinking that all these gifts, all these massive amounts, look how spiritual they are. Look how much they're giving. Because we like to compare stuff like that, don't we? You may not do it out loud, but secretly we all compare what we have, what we possess to each other. And this poor widow comes in with what seems like nothing to everyone. 
and in reality has given her everything. It's not about a percentage. It's not about how much noise it could make. I doubt anyone but Jesus would have noticed that gift. But Jesus isn't looking at an amount. He's looking at a motive. Jesus is not looking at an amount. He's looking at a motive. And this woman exemplifies what true trust in God looks like. She exemplifies what humility and contentment is. She didn't look at the rich men and feel guilty. I'm not giving enough. It wasn't about comparing. She was not in that place. It's about keeping her eyes on God. The kingdom of heaven is in her heart. And she's seeking first that kingdom. And Jesus looks and celebrates her faithfulness. I'm positive that those rich people gave in proportion. If those rich people gave in proportion to what the woman did, Jesus would celebrate them too, right? If they gave the same proportion to what they made that she did, they could have easily been the lesson, but they gave out of their comfort from a small portion of their surplus. She gave out of contentment and trust. I bet if this woman were around today, I'm just being honest, I think we would tell her, you need to save your money. You need to invest this. You need to accumulate wealth. And when you've done that and you are settled, that's the time that you should start giving. But that is not the same as the advice of Jesus, is it? I think this is why greed has taken hold of so many of our hearts And greed isn't just seen in our culture. It is celebrated in our culture. Greed simply is an excessive love for money or any possession that money can buy. The the early church did not call it greed. They had another term for it. Does anybody know the the old school term? Avarice. Yeah, we don't use that anymore. So um, today, we, we use different terms, though. We use terms like consumerism or capitalism, hoarding, extreme, coup- extreme couponing, or we, we save for the future. Really, honestly, it doesn't matter what name you give it. When it takes root, it's going to lead us all down the same exact path. When we let greed take root, we don't just want to have more. We want, each of us, things to count as mine. We don't just want more, we want things to count as mine. The best illustration I could think of this is Smeagol or Gollum from Lord of the Rings, right? He's obsessed with one thing and is going to do anything that he can, it's what? My precious. I, I have to have it. I want it. I need it. It's mine. How many, if you've seen this, you know how many, it's, it's so possessive. It becomes mine. And this is what we do with things, right? The more things that in our mind that we can hypothetically write our name on and claim them as this is mine, somehow the better we feel about ourselves. But that feeling we know is all, it's so short-lived, isn't it? The newer version of something that we have our name on comes out and we think, that's not as good. I need my name on something newer. And so what do we do? We buy newer things of stuff we've already got that meets a need, but we need a newer because it makes us feel better about who we are. And so we accumulate and we accumulate. What about when 
the stock market plummets. And our names that are written on our 401ks, our 403bs, our names become smaller because that, that investment is smaller. We stress about trying to accumulate more in those moments, don't we? Trying to get more for our future because we don't know what it holds. And deep down, we all know the truth. And here's the truth. Accumulation doesn't mean satisfaction. Let me just say it again in case you didn't hear it. Accumulation doesn't mean satisfaction. This is the lie the culture has told us that we should believe. And if we work really hard, we can get what we want. This week, you will be bombarded to skip the pleasantness of being with your friends and family and celebrating what you're thankful for to go and spend money on things that you do not need to meet a value that you don't have. Do not buy into Black Friday and its false advertisements of limited quantities, and if you don't get it, you're worth less. That is not true. How many purchases are going to be made this weekend that are never going to be used? Just because it's on sale doesn't mean you need it, let alone two of it. Greed pushes us. It pushes us to buy more, even if we don't need it. And it starts this horrible cycle. You see, first we overacquire. We gain so much, and then as we overacquire and accumulate, then we begin to overtrash and overthrow away. And if you're thinking this is just, oh, we do this with stuff, it's not stuff. Did you know the average family throws out the equivalent of about $1,500 worth of expired and unused food a year? Right? In America, we throw out one-third of the food that is produced for human consumption a year. We throw away, we eliminate a third of usable food. That's 206 billion pounds of food. It could be anything. Food, money, clothes, recreation, alcohol, cell phones, cars. You, 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 we're greedy for all sorts of things. But could you just imagine for a second, just in your head, what would happen... What would happen if everyone had access to your financial records today? All of your spending habits were out there for people to see. All your investment portfolios, your checking, your savings account, every little credit and debit, um, your credit card bills and everything that you've spent on, your tax returns, your receipts, your cash flow. If you've spent money on it or saved it, could you imagine if everyone had access to that? What would happen if they knew nothing about you? If someone who knew nothing about you got access to all of that, what sort of judgments would they make about your character, about what you love, what you value, where you spend on extra and where you get stingy? You see, it would tell them what you think is important and what you don't think is important. It would show them what you value. You see, greed begins in the heart and in the mind, but it doesn't necessarily stay inside. It, it almost has these patterns of getting. Um, and once we get, we need more. And if our deepest desires of value are not met by Christ, 
we'll try to find it somewhere else, and this is what greed does. The only way that you and I can put greed um, and uproot this into our life, to loosen this vice that's in our life is through a life of generosity. A life of generosity. And, and what generosity does is generosity's measure is not how much you give away, right, in terms of a flat amount, but rather it's, it's why you've given it away. It's the way that you give it away. Think back to Mark 12, right? This woman, she gave with her heart all that she had. Why the widow gave was more important than how much. But come on, why, why do we have such a problem with giving money and stuff away? For real, why do we have such an issue with this in our country? Is this new? Well, Thomas Aquinas, one of the guys that we talked about in our very first week, who uh, he says that there are two hindrances to generosity, two hindrances to generosity. The first one is um, when it comes to our money and possessions, we sweat for it, right? We, we sweat for what we have. Look how handsome he is there. That's his very thinking pose with his pen there. The first hindrance to generosity, we sweat for what we have, right? We earn stuff, and owning stuff makes us feel important and in control, so giving stuff away then relinquishes our control of what we have and who we think we are. This may come as a surprise to you, but um, we kind of like feeling in control in this part of the world. We, We work hard for our money, so you better treat me right. Wait, no. See, if you're not old, you missed that one. We do work hard. I think many of us, we work very hard for what we make. And so we, we do believe that because I work hard for what I make, I should be able to spend it on what I want. That's, that's what I get to do. And in the end, we buy things and we possess things. And the question is, do we possess our possessions or do our possessions possess us? Because we can't get rid of it. We can't give it away. The second thing that keeps us The hindrance to generosity that Thomas Aquinas would say is an experience, the experience of poverty, right? There's a sense of vulnerability and anxiety when you live a life of scarcity, and it deeply shapes the habits and the hearts of people who live in poverty or who grew up in poverty. If they grew up starving, um, they, they have different sets of issues that they will have to wrestle with, right? Members of the Great Depression... Across the board, they found that they lived the rest of their lives because they had nothing with this collective desire to have, to possess, to hoard, because they never want to be in that situation again. And so to give it away, I can't do that. I might not have stuff later. And you see, fear, fear of wanting more is very hard to kill. And so the question that we should be asking ourselves then is simply this, how much stuff is enough? When do we know if our barn is full? How much stuff is enough? And it's kind of a trick question because um, the more money and the stuff that we possess, the more money, time, energy that we need to protect and spend taking care of it, right? The bigger the house is, the more furniture, the more time and money spent cleaning. And because we value our time so much, we'll spend money to have people come in and clean it so we can get our time back because it's too much for us to do. Right? We spend more money on repairs, on upkeeps. With bigger property, we, we, we need to spend more to make it look good. And I'm not saying that we could not or should not have these things. I'm just saying when we spend more on things to gain more on things, it costs us much more than the money that is spent on it and it possesses us. The repairs, the upkeep, all of it. 
And then the garage fills with our surplus. Our closets fill with our surplus. And instead of providing all this freedom that we wanted and all this, this hope, we actually find ourselves more anxious about how much we own. And so now, because we own so much, we get a better security system to protect the things that own us, that, that we own. Do you see the cycle? Do you see the pattern? I can't even begin. I think that we've accumulated so much. But I can't tell you for you how much is too much. I don't get the right to do that. I'm not the Holy Spirit. And I think that's because it's different for all of us. There is something in this that I will tell you I didn't think about that was deeply convicting. Of, of all the vices, I stupidly thought, oh, I'm glad that I don't wrestle as much with this one. Last week ate me up horrible, and I was like, oh, good, this one won't be so bad for me. And then I discovered something in study that actually wrecked me deeply, and it's simply that greed causes an indifference towards those in want. And here's what I mean. Throughout the Old Testament, we see these prophets speak all the time about how the lifestyles of the wealthy and specifically the religious, they cause an oppression over the land, right? They, they, pre they present this place where they have so much they could care less about the people who have none. And when I read the statements that they level against Israel, I'm just going to be straight. I think they could be leveled at the church today and leveled at our country that our wealth has made us ignorant of those who are in need around us. Greed is a sin against our neighbor. You see, Basil of Caesarea, he's this, I mean, you want to talk old dude. Um, this guy was around like fourth century, all right? He preached a sermon on the same exact passage that we were looking at in Luke chapter 12, this parable of bigger barns. And in it, it, it after he preaches and gets, reads the text, he tries to encourage his congregation. And he's trying to push them through the complacency that they have about the injustice that's happening around him. He's like, guys, you've got to catch up with this. And he basically says that when our acquisition or our keeping deprives other people, um, let me just read to you what he says. Oh, that's tough. He says, it's the hungry one's bread that you hoard. It's the hungry one's bread that you hoard. The cloak that you retain is the one. I mistyped that on there. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just pausing on this because I know it comes next and I don't want to say it. He says it's the hungry one's bread that you hoard, the cakes... Uh, one's cloak that you retain, the needy one's money that you withhold. Therefore, as many as you have wronged, you might have succored. If you were to say this today, I like the way that Rebecca DeYoung says it. The money for your expensive coffee this morning belonged to the child who came to school with no breakfast. The new winter coat hanging in your closet next to four other coats, which are now out of style belongs to the homeless person that you passed on your way downtown last weekend. The money that you saved for retirement would make the difference between substance and starvation. 
for the sweatshop worker who made your favorite hiking boots that you've worn only twice. And as a result, as many as you have wronged, you might have helped. Greed is not getting more for us, it is stealing from us. It is stealing from our neighbors. And in order to loosen the grip of greed, you have to take steps in living a life of generosity. A life of generosity will look different than our world and it will be hard and I get it. And if you want to do this, I will just tell you the first step you need to take is know your weaknesses. Know your weaknesses. Um, if you want to live a life of generosity, you've got to know where you're struggling. Uh, I would encourage you, if you don't have a budget, try to make a budget. If you have no idea where to even begin with that, start today and track for a month everything you spend money on. Everywhere that you spend money, everywhere that you put money to save, if you're going to spend it, track it somewhere, some way, so that you can kind of get an idea of where is it going? This will reveal to you where you put most of your money, right? It's very easy. When you look it over, it'll show you what you value. It'll show you what you fear. When you understand those things, you can ask Jesus to help you have the strength to overcome those fears and weaknesses so that you may start to live a life of generosity. The second step that I would encourage you to take in living a life of generosity is to sell or give stuff away. Sell or give it away. This simply means that if something has your heart and you know it, sell it or just give it away. I'm dead serious. Like I'm not even joking about it a little bit. And if you sell it, do me a favor. Don't save the money for yourself. Give it away. Donate it. Give it somewhere right? If it seems severe, you're like, Jimmy, that's just stupid. Again, I'll say what I said in the beginning. Don't take it up with me. This is exactly what Jesus just said, and we read it together. If you have what someone needs, and you can't give it to them, and it is in your surplus, this is sin. I don't know any neater, nicer way to say it. This is our responsibility as those who follow Jesus. If someone around you is in need and you've got what it takes to meet the need and you aren't using it, give it to them. Give it to them. And if you cannot give your things away, they have you, you don't have them. Just so you know. And the third and final step that I would suggest in living a life of generosity is simply this. It's tithing. It's tithing. Now, this final practice is found in both the Old and the New Testament, and this is a, a biblical idea of giving 10% of what we have back to God. And if you're thinking, there's just no way, Jimmy, that I'm doing that. I cannot afford to give away 10%. I would, again, encourage you, make the budget. See where your money goes. You can, right? See what type of things you're spending on. And, and my other favorite thing that I get from most people is like 10%. Like net or gross? You know what my answer always is? I don't even care because the average person who follows Jesus in America doesn't even give about 2.5% of their income away anyway. You take your pick. Go ahead. I don't care because it's not between you and me. It's between you and God. If, if two and a half is where most people are finding themselves, statistically speaking, here's what grieves me the most. Percentage-wise, the people who give the least amount of money away are the people who make in between 100000 to a half a million dollars a year. 100000 to a half a million give the least amount of proportion of their money, and those who are most generous make $50,000 a year or under. They give exponentially more proportionally. 
I will tell you personally, tithing has been one of the greatest disciplines and joys for me to experience in my life since I've been a teenager. Um, it's my favorite weapon against greed. I love it. And I, I love giving on top of my tithe. And if you're like, boy, you just talked about being glory. Are you being boastful about it? No, I am telling you that God has never, ever let me down. He's always provided everything that I need. Have I had to let wants go? Sure. But I have never needed. He's always provided. And I'm not boasting. And I know some of you are thinking right now, like, I knew you were going to go there, Jimmy. You said it. You said you weren't going to. Of course I'm going to go there because Scripture goes here, and I'm going to go here because I think that this biblical principle could change your life if you actually understand it, not just tithing, but giving out of a surplus. And I will tell you as a church, we practice this, and I am excited and proud of, of our church. Do you know in 2020 and 2021, the giving was uh, way over what we expected, and so we had what we needed. Did you know what we did with our surplus? We gave it away. <laughs> we gave our surplus away. I kid you not. Do you know how much we gave away? We, we gave it away to homeless ministries, local, Philly, uh, local outreaches, tornado victims. We gave, we gave money to other churches who were hurting and in need because we love them. We, we gave away to uh, the Middle East and all that's happening there. And in those two years... We gave away over $141,000. Amen is right. Praise God. Praise God. How cool is that? That the generosity of our church came together and we didn't just hear what Jesus says and go, that's cool, man. No, it's like, this is what you want us to do. We will do that. A life of generosity builds trust. So this year, I'll tell you straight up, we had our projected giving. We're about $33,000 under what we thought our projecting giving would be. And I asked our board, do you think we should have saved some of that money from 20 and 21? And every one of them said, no. We knew what God told us to do. We will do that again. He'll meet what we need. And so our spending has gone way down to meet what he's provided. He'll always provide what we need. And then what's over what we need, we will give away. This is what a life of generosity looks like. So we're not freaking out this year. We trust God. Because he's never left us. He'll never forsake us. And I need to tell you that in your life, if you cannot live a life of generosity, you will be owned by everything you try to write your name on. The root awakening is nothing is yours. You've acquired nothing that is yours. It's all God's. How will you live? Will you be the person, the follower of Jesus, who meets the needs of those around you out of obedience and excitement or trying to store up more treasures on earth? Having a bigger barn because you don't know what the future holds and watching injustice around you. I want to be the church. I want to be the church with followers of Jesus who are so generous that people don't understand it and look and say, you're idiots for how much you give away. And we will all say it's because of what Jesus has given us. His life, his death, his blood to pay for our sin. We can be generous because we follow a God who's generous. Amen? So what type of life will you live?
will you seek first the kingdom of heaven? So with this in mind, we close with communion today. Receiving communion together, knowing that Christ is all that we need. Everything that we need. He's sufficient. He's the fullness of all that we could ask for. And when we are truly met with our value and worth in Jesus, let me tell you, we're ready to step into giving generously to those around.